Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast with Marianne Freiberger and Rachel Thomas. Over the last few weeks, it's been impossible to think or talk about pretty much anything else but the coronavirus. And here at PLUS, we've been busy covering it too, because maths plays a really important role in all of this. And unusually, everyone has become used to using really mathematical language like flattening the curve, exponential growth, percentages and growth rates. And we've all become familiar with the idea that it's mathematical models that are being used to predict the future of the pandemic and the effect of interventions. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss the maths behind that epidemic curve that you keep hearing about in the news. We're going to hear from Professor David Spiegelhalter about how best to communicate the maths of the pandemic. And finally, I'm going to challenge Marianne to explain some maths in one minute. So to start off, Marianne, what has struck you most about COVID-19 so far? So it's really hard to keep track of what's been striking me, because even though this epidemic has only been going on for a few weeks, it already feels like an eternity and things change all the time. But one thing that I noticed quite early on was the difference in the mortality rates between Germany and the UK. The German rate, as it's being reported, is a lot lower than it is here. And as the, the data and the statistics were coming out, it took me a couple of days to figure out what might be the reason behind that. And one of them is the testing. As we all know now, because it's been all over the news, there's a lot more testing going on in Germany. And obviously, if you test more people, the mortality rate is going to be lower, especially since the people who are tested here on the whole tend to be people who are in hospital. So they're already really ill. So obviously, then you're going to get a higher mortality rate out of that. What I also found interesting is that apparently in Germany, the initial case, cases of the infections came to a large extent from people who'd come back from Italy from their skiing holiday. Now, obviously, if you go skiing, you tend to be younger and fit and healthy. And because these people were being tested and then traced and isolated straight away, that meant that the infection couldn't spread so quickly to the older part of the population, which again resulted in a lower mortality rate, apparently. And then there may be other factors too, like differences in the healthcare systems or even in how deaths are being counted. Because how do you decide whether somebody's actually died of COVID-19 or of some other health underlying health condition they might have at the same time? So it was interesting how this picture that explained that strange statistical fact slowly came together as more information was coming out. And what about you, Rachel? What has struck you so far about the pandemic? I think the thing I've been most struck by is both a mathematical phenomenon but also a bit of a psychological phenomenon um we all seem to have this really urgent need for certainty we want to know what's going on we want to know the details of this pandemic we want to understand what's happening next um but the problem is that we can't have certainty because this is an inherently uncertain situation and we only are getting an illusion of certainty because we have these numbers and data that occur that are coming through the news or appearing on websites all the time and as you've just described 
with the situation about the German death rates that illustrates this idea that the numbers can mean very different things in different countries. And um, although we are looking for numbers every day and we're getting them through news reports or from sites like the John Hopkins website that counts uh, the, the number of cases and deaths around the world, that might give you a feeling that you're getting a really clear picture of what's happening around the world. But really, as you've explained, these numbers from different countries are capturing, really could be capturing different information or they come with different limitations. And just because you're seeing concrete numbers changing day by day on your computer screen or on your phone screen, you have to remember that this is a live pandemic with really live data and you have to understand the limitations of the data that you're seeing. And the fact for modelers of, of the pandemic, the fact that this is live data, this isn't a completed data set from something that happened years ago where you have everything completed and wrapped up and cleaned. This is happening now and there's inherent, there's inherent uncertainty in the data that the modelers are having to use to understand the pandemic and to make predictions. So let's first look at those widely cited mathematical models that deliver all the predictions that the policies are based on. What are they and how can they even work with a new disease where there's so many uncertainties? Now, we were really lucky to talk to Julia Gorg, who's a professor of mathematical biology here at Cambridge. In early February, Julia dropped all her normal duties at the university and started devoting all her time to SPY-M. That's a modeling group which feeds its result directly into SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. Now, for obvious reasons, Julia didn't have the time to do a podcast recording with us, but we had a really interesting phone chat with her. And we started off by asking her to describe the models that are used to understand infectious diseases in general. You might not have realized it, but there's a good chance that you yourself have already dabbled in some mathematical modeling. If you heard on the news that, say, the number of people who are infected with COVID-19 doubles every three days, you may have well worked out that if today we have, say, two cases and this trend continues, then we will have four cases in three days, eight cases in six days, 16 cases in nine days, and so on. That's the exponential growth that has led to this terrifying situation we find ourselves in. This leads us to the basic ingredients of a mathematical model. A mathematical model is something which starts with a mathematical expression which describes the general nature of the change that you're trying to model, in, the, in our case the number of cases of people infected with COVID-19, how that changes over time. And in our example that's an exponential expression. And the other ingredient of the model is you need the exact parameters which pin down the exact shape of the change you're describing. So as we've discovered, an important parameter is the number of days it takes for the number of infections to double, the doubling time, which, which in, the, in the example we were thinking about was three days. That's an example of a very simple model, and that would work pretty well in the beginning of an outbreak. But if you want longer term predictions and if you want to simulate the impact of interventions in details, interventions such as school closures or lockdowns and things, then you need a more sophisticated model. 
And although there's loads of different models designed to do different things, most of the models tend to be built around an approach that has been around since 1910 or thereabouts. And that's the SIR model. So Rachel, can you explain us how that works? To get the general idea behind this SIR model, you have to start off imagining a population of people in which everyone is either susceptible to the disease, which is the letter S from the name of the model, they are infected with the disease, which is the letter I from the name of the model, or they're recovered, the R, and therefore we assume they're immune. Then the way that people pass from the susceptible S class into the infected I class and then from the I class into the recovered R class is described by mathematical equations. These equations depend on important parameters such as the transmission rate for the disease and the recovery rate for the disease. The way you make a prediction is you start the model off with some small proportion of the population in the infected class and in the cases for modelling of real pandemics you use that from data that you've gathered from testing and then you let it evolve over time seeing how the disease spreads through the population and then hopefully subsides as people recover and become immune. Now, obviously, that's quite a simple model, but even though it is very simple, it already gives really good predictions when you're dealing with simple populations. So, for example, there's quite a famous graph, which you can probably find online, which shows the outbreak of, I think it was flu in a boarding school, and it shows the real cases as they grew and then um, subsided, and it shows the prediction of the model and the two match really, really well. So the SIR model is is, is good, but... Um, When it comes to more complex populations, you can link up many individual SIR models representing different geographical locations and subpopulations. So, for example, you could have an individual SIR model representing a particular town or even an individual school. So, what's really important in building these models, these mathematical models of the spread of a disease in a population. What's really important in this context are people's contact patterns. So that's who meets whom and how frequently they meet. Now, information on people's contact patterns comes from social mixing studies. And a really fascinating example is this large-scale citizen science project which ran in 2018 as a collaboration between the BBC and Julia Gogg's team. Uh, Here people were asked to download a digital app on their phones which tracked their movements and it also asked them to keep track of the people they met, everything obviously suitably anonymised. And then this contact data was represented mathematically, so it could be built into these types of SIR models. And it's using these contact data that you can actually simulate and test particular social interventions, such as school closures. So, for example, one thing you could do if you're thinking of completely closing schools is you just switch off the schools component in your model. Now, obviously, that's not applicable at the moment because certain children, children of keyworks are still going to school. So what you then do is you just change the contact rates accordingly. But you have to be really careful because children that are not going to school, that are staying at home, might then have more contact with people at home. So this needs to be reflected in the way that you change your contact data. 
You can also use existing data, for example, information on what happened during teacher strikes previously, to calibrate your contact rates to reflect interventions and predict their effect on the epidemic. But how does all this epidemiological modelling work with a new disease when there's so much we don't know? Now, Julia Gog and her colleagues previously worked on things like influenza because influenza is around us every year and there's really good data on that disease and also on past epidemics and pandemics of new strains of influenza. So Julia told us that one of the first things she had to do when she started working on COVID-19 was to figure out how it's different from influenza. And one of the important differences is that for COVID-19, there's a substantial latent period. So a person can have the infection without showing any symptoms. And for influenza, maybe you get a few hours of that. But for this new coronavirus, it can be a few days. And what's important is in that latent period where you might not be showing any symptoms, you may be infectious. So in terms of the model you use to predict the evolution of this disease through a population, this means adding an extra class of people to your model. You started off with your SIR model with susceptible people, infected people and recovered people. But this time you need to add an extra class of people who have the infection but have no symptoms yet. So as Julia told us, all models are approximations and for influenza you can often get away with just an SIR model just with the three classes of people depending on what you're trying to address. But ignoring the latent period for this virus would be much worse as an approximation especially if you're making short-term predictions. So it usually does need to be considered. Another thing that is really important to notice, as Julia told us, is that there isn't just one huge model that is used to, to predict the future of the pandemic across the world or in one particular country. There are many different models designed to do different things. And some of these models are completely deterministic, others contain a degree of randomness. Some are de designed to run just once to demonstrate the role of one particular factor, say closing schools or something like that. And others are run many times to get ranges of predictions in the face of uncertainty. Now, each model will rely on one or more parameters, as we've already seen. So the simple SIR model we talked about had a transmission rate and a recovery rate as parameters. And um, the exponential model we talked about at the beginning was using the doubling time as a parameter. Now, as you already said earlier, Rachel, this is a live pandemic. So the problem is that we don't actually know the exact values of those parameters that might be important in a, in a model. They, they need to be estimated. And a hugely important job for modelers is firstly to decide which parameters are the important ones and then focus on these ones and try to get them as right as they can. And in order to estimate them as accurately as possible, the modelers will take into account all the information they have. So this may be data from other countries, such as China or Italy. And even the data that came out of those cruise ships was very, very important. So all that information needs to be taken into account to get the most accurate estimates for the parameters that are important in a model. One of the points we've really emphasized in this chat 
is that the data is live, there's inherent uncertainties, the information modelers are working with is, is, is limited, but we do not want you to go away from listening to this podcast thinking the modeling predictions are just some kind of stab in the dark. Modeling predictions are incredibly useful and incredibly valid if they account for and present the range of uncertainty that's inherent in the data going into them and the predictions that are coming out of them. It's really important that good models comprise all the relevant information that we do have and that good modelers keep track of all the limitations of their models and the uncertainties within them. So they might do this by including the range of possible values for the parameters that are the ingredients in their model. And they would usually present the range of predictions, the range of possible future scenarios that may occur. The predictions won't be certain and definite, but they're the best that can be done with the information we have. So, Marianne, when you spoke to Julia Gogg, how did she feel about being called in to suddenly work on a live pandemic and her and having her mathematics have so much immediate impact on people's lives? One of the things that became clear when I, when I talked to Julia Gogg is that she and her colleagues have been working flat out 24-7 in order to come up with those models and run them and come up with the predictions. And on top of that, they then also have to communicate these predictions and their thoughts about them to the people in charge, to the politicians. And another thing that also became very clear while I was talking to her is just how important it is for all of us to follow the guidelines, to stay at home when we're being told to stay at home and to wash our hands and to do all of this. Because Julia is a person who really, really knows how little transgressions can possibly snowball into something horrible. So she was very adamant that we all really do need to stick to those guidelines. And the other thing that's that's been really interesting in the work we've been doing covering the pandemic is this new situation mathematicians find themselves in. So Julia Gogg and a great deal of the other people involved in uh, this work advising governments here and around the world you know, they're applied mathematicians, they're used to their work having an impact on our lives. But the idea of your work having an impact today and tomorrow, such an immediate impact, and that you need to do it now in order to save lives, I think is a situation that many mathematicians, it's a new situation. We spoke to Mike Cates, who's the Lucasian Professor of Mathematics, who, together with Julia Gogg, is leading a task force of academics coordinated by the Royal Society. Now, this task force is trying to harness the valuable skills from across the scientific community in the UK, people who might have expertise in computer modelling or some other area of mathematics who don't have direct experience working on pandemics, but who can help support the epidemiologists in modelling and understanding the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the most fascinating things that uh, Mike told us was that 
he said, you know, this is the first time in his lifetime that he's encountered such an urgent call to arms for mathematicians and scientists to help save lives today, to, to, to have that kind of immediate impact. And the other aspect of this task force is to really harness this urge by the scientific community to want to help and want to help in a coordinated way. He said they've had an overwhelming response from researchers across the UK. Uh, hundreds of researchers have got in contact and they're all incredibly keen to help and incredibly able to help. And one of the things he said that was so moving was that he said, you know, this response has shown that we're all humans first and mathematicians or scientists second. And when you're faced with a human catastrophe such as this pandemic, everyone's first instinct is to do whatever they can to help out. And the goal of this task force from the Royal Society is to marshal this goodwill into a really productive effort that will help combat the pandemic. We have more details about the work Julia Gogg is doing for advising the government on this pandemic and about the task force being led by Mike Cates and Julia Gogg on our website plus.maths.org. Now, one of the main uncertainties in all of this, something that every epidemiologist would give their right arm for knowing at the moment, is the number of asymptomatics. So those are people who've had the disease but haven't had any symptoms, so they don't know they've had it. Now, until the antibody tests are rolled out widely, we simply don't know how many of these asymptomatic people there have been or there are which means that we don't know how many people are now immune, because one thing that people are very much hoping is that having had the disease will make you immune, at least for a little while. And the problem with not knowing how many people are immune is that you then don't know how bad a subsequent resurgence of the disease will be when the social distancing measures are lifted. Now, this question of how many people are immune brings us to a concept that has been discussed quite a lot lately, which is herd immunity. So herd immunity is the idea that if enough people in a population are immune, then an epidemic can't take hold again the way it did when everyone else was susceptible. We'll go through the maths of herd immunity a bit later, but first we thought we'd have a quick discussion about a communication disaster that happened in the UK in one of the early government press briefings. It was towards the middle of March when the plan was still trying to mitigate the epidemic rather than suppress it completely. And this press briefing left some people with the impression that the government was planning to sacrifice the vulnerable to get herd immunity. We turn to our good friend of PLUS, David Spiegelhalter, who's the chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge, to ask how he thought government communications about herd immunity had gone. Now, we do want to apologise for the bad quality of this recording as it was recorded over Skype. That was Patrick Valance, the Chief Scientific Advisor. He's extremely good. And it, it was really bizarre that in, I think, two interviews he mentioned this idea and although, if you look at his words carefully, he never suggested this was a target. 
He says this this might be a consequence and uh, a byproduct of the policy that a lot of people would get the disease and develop some herd immunity, and that would help in the future for recurrences, which is perfectly true, but it was not a target. It's not mentioned in any of the policy documents. It wasn't part. So why he mentioned it is uh, anyone's guess, and it was a completely um, uh, wrong thing to do. What it reinforced for me is something that we feel very strongly in our Winton Centre, is that you know, we should be communicating openly and transparently but we need to test our messaging. We need to make sure that it's not going to be misunderstood as this was. We've got to be very careful with the communication. But of course, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't say things. We should be communicating more and consistently and openly and admitting uncertainties. So given that the government communication about herd immunity went a bit wrong, we asked David if he had more general advice about how to communicate in a crisis. There are some basic principles for communicating in a crisis that I learned from John Krebs when he was head of the Food Standards Agency and had to deal with many crises. And the first thing is that you should be communicating a lot and consistently and with trusted sources. And then you've got to be open and transparent. You've got to say what you do know you know, as much as you can do. And then you have to say what you don't know. You have to emphasize and keep on emphasizing the uncertainty, the fact that we don't know so much. And then you say what we're planning to do and what the, and, and some of this may be to be on the safe side, contingency planning and why we're doing it. And then you say what you can do, what people can do, self-efficacy, how they can act. But the crucial thing, then you say, but this will change, you know, and they, and that, you know, we'll come back to you. Things will change. As we learn more, we will change. Now, as we're getting through this crisis, a lot will depend on how much trust people will have left in the government or even perhaps will have gained in the government if they think they're handling the situation well. And when it comes to trust, David refers to the philosopher Honora O'Neill. She's characterised what she calls intelligent transparency. You know, if you're going to say... You, they, they, the government keep on saying, oh, we're transparent, we're good transparent. Okay, she's defined what being transparent really means. So transparency, intelligent transparency, is uh, making sure the information is accessible. People have got to be able to get at it. And again, that means, you know, repeating it again and again, um, that, uh, you know, making sure it's available in many sources and many types. It's got to be comprehensible. People have got to understand it. And you should check that. So you don't go on about and, and get the and that they're getting the right impression. And that's why this discussion of herd immunity was so disastrous. Because people just misunderstood what was going on there. And then it's got to be usable. And I think this is a lovely phrase, her idea of usable. It's got to answer people's questions and concerns. So that means you have to listen. You know, what are people worried about? And um, you've got to listen. And you know, the phone-ins, the contacts are absolutely vital to you. You respond to what people's concerns are. And, and, and I think they're doing people, they're obviously trying to do quite well at that. But the final one is the crucial one where they, people have fall down all the time. She says the information must be accessible. You shouldn't just have to take it on trust. And most people will, but it, it, there are other people out there who know a lot and should be able to check your working. They should be able to see the basis for your work. Otherwise, it's pure paternalism, pure you know, central control. We have to say, oh, thank you very much, thank you. Well, no. 
we're not that sort of population. In fact, we want to know why things are being done to us. We're, we're people are making huge sacrifices. They want to know that it's worthwhile doing. And so you have to have that openness where you open yourself up. And that that sort of transparency, that accessibility means actually um, you have to be vulnerable. You have to open yourself up to criticism. That is trustworthiness. Now, the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication, of which David is the chair, is actually currently conducting some research into how people in different countries feel about the pandemic and the way their governments are communicating and handling the situation. And so far they have found out that people in Germany, for example, appear to trust their government more than people in the UK and the U US. And they are currently collecting more data. You can find out more about this on our website plus.maths.org. Now, in this section of the podcast, we're going to challenge Marianne to explain a mathematical concept to us in one minute. So now, Marianne, we're going to time you while you explain the concept of herd immunity to us. Okay, three, two, one, go. One very important parameter in epidemiology is the effective reproduction number of a disease. So that's the number of people an infectious person goes on to infect on average. Now, obviously, the bigger that number, the faster the epidemic will spread. And as long as that number, which is normally denoted by R, is bigger than 1, the number of new infections will continue to grow. So, for example, if R is equal to 2, then a single person will infect 2 more people, who will go on to infect 4 more people, who will then go on to infect 8 more people, and so on. The aim of any intervention, whether it's the social distancing we're living through now or vaccination, is to bring the effective reproduction number R to less than 1, because that means that the number of new infections becomes smaller and smaller progressively. When this is the case, then we have herd immunity. That is great. That was just under one minute. Right, but I want to know some more. Uh, how does this mathematics of herd immunity... How does that lead to the figure we've heard about so much in the news of needing at least 60% of the population immune from the COVID-19 disease to get herd immunity for this particular disease? Right, well, for COVID-19, the initial value of R, when everybody in the population was susceptible to catching the disease, was estimated to lie somewhere between 2 and 2.5, roughly. Now that initial value is called R0, it's the basic reproduction number of the disease. Over time, the proportion of people who are susceptible to catching the disease will decrease from one, which means everybody is susceptible, to some smaller number, say for example a half. Now if that proportion is called P, then the effective reproduction number R is equal to P times the initial reproduction number R0. So, for example, if we take R0 to be 2.5, and we are at the point in the epidemic where only half the population is susceptible, that is p equals 0.5, then the effective reproduction number r is a half of 2.5, which is 1.25. So this is how you work out the effective reproduction number from the proportion p that are susceptible and the initial reproduction number r0. You can use this mathematical relationship the other way around to understand what proportion you need to be immune 
in order for the effective reproduction number R to be less than one, which is what we want for herd immunity. And a back of the envelope calculation tells you that you need a proportion of 0.6 of the population to be immune at least, and that translates to 60%. So to get herd immunity for an R node of 2.5, we need to get at least 60% of the population not susceptible to catching the disease. You can find out all the details behind that calculation and the rest of the mathematics we've talked about in this podcast on our website plus.maths.org. That's it for this PLUS podcast. The music in this podcast came from the band USA and the track is called Now We Are All SOBs. Thanks for listening, stay home and stay safe.